SAFM 104 to 107 nationwide, leading the conversation. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. On SAFM. Indeed, we are back. And just again, I have to reaffirm um, this. This clip that we are about to play is a conversation that took place on this very platform, on this very slot, albeit on a Tuesday when General Bando Olomisa was the one doing the takeover. And he had called a guest of his choice then, Mr. Vavi. This is a conversation in relation to ultimately it was about economic recovery for South Africa now. But what they're speaking about is a reference of some hundred years before. Take a listen. Let's address the principle and the history at the same time. South Africa is not facing a pandemic of economic uh, crisis of uh, unimaginable proportions for the first time. After this, the First World War of 1928-29, South Africa hit what we call a, a or the economists call the Great Depression. Our GDP declined by more than 10%, and everything was turning right to ground zero. And uh, the government then, of the whites only, recognizing what they called the white poor problem, engineered the the Africana uh, poor Mm. problem. They engineered a, a program and uh, and they used the the government and generally all workers at that time were only white workers were regarded as workers they used their pensions their pensions and so uh, they reinforced the escom that would have been created in 1922 23 they built uh, telecom they built railways Mm-hmm. Build, uh, all of the state-owned enterprises that we have today, and these were built through the pension funds of workers. And as a result of that massive industrialization program, even the black workers who were never meant to benefit from that program were became the major beneficiaries through an, a large employment uh, creation. And as a result, South Africa saw the longest and the biggest levels of GDP growth in between 1982 mm-hmm. and for 15 years the the economy was growing at, of, uh, at about 8% and more in some of the years and periods. So that's a history. So from that point of view, no South African who have grown here would have not known that South African government before 1994 actually used parliament to prescribe that all pension funds and provident funds must set aside 10% uh, to invest in the infrastructure to bolster economy and to uh, engineer development. That was absolutely great. Mr. Bass, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, Songhezu. 
we've had many conversations leading up to this, and I thought I would play that clip just to predicate the conversation. And I don't profess, of course, that everything Mr. Vavi was saying there is entirely accurate or even at all representing the history as you probably might know it differently, yeah. if not better. But I think essentially, let's have this conversation for the critical period, the first 48 years of this 20th century that we've just come out of some 20 years ago. Yeah. The Afrikaners from the concentration camps following the Anglo-Boer War felt, however so, that they were poor, whatever the definition of poor then was. I'm asking the this conversation, and we are having this conversation because I just want to understand exactly what it is that can happen when a community decides after having engaged its circumstances and how after the decision is made by that given community to change their fate, what it is that they did, who was the chief in organizing for that, and what role, if any, the state's resources played for the purposes of making that economic migration northwards. So with that open-ended question, perhaps you might just give us a historical account, really, of what led to the Carnegie Commission of 1932 following the Arma, the Arma Blanca Frachter. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Zongezi, uh, the the most important factor that, uh, in the 1930s of the previous century was that the private sector and the community was a locomotive of the economy, and the state was only the railway. So the state, it is true that the state has played an important role, but Afrikaners at that stage saw the state as the housekeeper rather than the breadwinner. So without the role, the very big role of the community. The private sector on its own would lead to a situation where uh, capitalism at that stage with the master and other servants. So what uh, the Marxist historian, Ben O'Meara, he, uh, his book is, uh, uh, even in English, he called it folks capitalism, you know, for people's capitalism, if you, if you, if you want. But so mm. for, for my grandparents at that stage, it was important that capitalism is the servant and, and not the master. So as we see it, the, the slogan at that stage was um, a nation saves itself. So capitalism was the ox that pulled the poor Afrikaner wagon uh, out of poverty. So uh, although the state um, have a, have a role to play, an important role to play, the government's main role was to provide a professional civil service, ensure safety, uphold the rule of law, uh, etc. You know, basically provide the infrastructure for an industrial revolution, infrastructure like electricity, railways, and steel. So the economy was built on that infrastructure. And it wasn't the pension funds that fund the infrastructure. The pension funds uh, fund uh, you know, they fund uh, private sector growth. It, they was invested in the private sector. So tax money was used to uh, provide that infrastructure. So in many respects, that infrastructure in today's conversation or terms would be largely built on your prasas to an extent, but certainly your infrastructure, rail in particular, would be your transnet. So in other words, yeah. the role of state-owned entities at least in the primary economic services, would have been particularly important. And of course, this yeah. is something which is happening now perhaps with, well, it depends how you define success, with great success or very poor success. But let's go back because the 1930s is what, 10 years after the Great War and yeah. literally the decade following the Great Depression. So at any rate, no country the world over, certainly in the developed North, is having a booming economy. 
So in yeah. a way, the Afrikaners, the poor Afrikaners at that time decided that things needed to change was quite consistent with what the world was trying to do. Of course, never mind the fact that a couple of years on, the Second World War started. But I mean, certainly key fundamentals were established then. Tell us about the 1930s. Um, the, the biggest event in the 1930s, from uh, Afrikaner's point of view, was what we call the, the Big Economic uh, People's Congress. You know, that was a congress the, uh, that um, many people uh, attended. It was it was very large. It was very well uh, organized, and the, the whole idea of the, the congress was to create a plan for uh, economic revival. Now, it is important to, to know that in 1939. The National Party wasn't in power, so it was, uh, you know, a pro-colonial, uh, you know, government at that stage. So yeah, the was, was to convince Afrikaners at that stage that the solution, um, you know, is, uh, you know, lies in the free market and not not with the state. That the people must uh, depend on themselves. That they must, uh, you know, they must build a cultural infrastructure like schools, like universities, like colleges, and so on, uh, in order to empower their community to um, organize themselves uh, economically and to lift themselves out of poverty. So they were saving societies, you know, more or less like, like the stock sales of, uh, of, of today. And that money was invested in uh, many companies that the private sector started. So, so it was really, um, uh, you know, the whole aim was to, to get the Afrikaans to participate. Uh, in the economy, because uh, the leaders, economic leaders at that stage, said that your share in the uh, economy will be determined by your contribution towards the economy. So, if you built a large number of companies, you know, like Sunlam, Santam, Rembrandt, uh, Foxcast, Naspers, Afpop, and all that, federal mining, a lot of them, then you, you, you increase your participation in the economy, you increase your, your contribution, and at the same stage, you increase your, uh, your share in the economy. Fantastic. Let's take a short ad break. Flip Base of Solidarity is here giving us a historical account of the Africana Economic Empowerment Program of some 100 years ago, between the 20s and the 30s, leading up to, of course, 1948. We're not going to go beyond 1948 because I think that's contested terrain that we won't have enough time to talk about this evening. 0891 your thoughts after the break are most welcome. SMS SAFM now on 41391. Now. We are asking questions of Mr. Flip Base of the organization Solidarity, particularly in relation to how the Afrikaners following the plight of the Anglo-Boer War and the percentage of their community who were poor some 90 to 100 years ago at the birth of the 20th century were able to construct an economy built around their identity, which allows them now, relatively speaking, to enjoy the great percentage of economic freedom and related liberations or liberties that come with that. We're asking these questions because perhaps we might be in a position to better understand the successes or failures of the post-1994 South African governments, all of which have been led by the African National Congress. 26 years on, let's have a conversation that continues now with Mr. Flip Bass. Flip, let's start with how language and culture, culture and language, the nexus between those two, was just about fundamental and central in the building and forging a new identity for the Afrikaner folk, as it were. 
Yes, uh, um, Songhezu, the driving force behind the economic empowerment of Afrikaners in the 1930s was the, the strife towards freedom after, uh, you know, the humiliation, the devastation and the impoverishment of the anglo boer War. So at that stage, decolonization of the Afrikaners was regarded as, as um, the, you know, as uh, um, the first objective was cultural freedom, then economic liberation, and then in the end, uh, political, uh, in, in political freedom. So uh, with regard to cultural freedom, the problem the Afrikaners at that stage uh, was that according to, to their view, that you can't modernize in a second language, in a, in a foreign language. In a, in a, in a, you must modernize in your own language. So the first, uh, um, the whole first, you know, the first uh, objective was to modernize Afrikaans, because it, was, it wasn't a modern language, you know. And in the end, they've modernized uh, Afrikaans in, in a, basically a, a decade or so, and Afrikaans was recognized as an official language in 1924. Uh, um, now, now, what happened is that Afrikaans is one of only four languages that has modernized in the previous century, modernized in the sense that it was used in, in all its functions. Now, now mm. the four languages was Hindi, Malay, Hebrew, and then Afrikaans. Now, the, the, the slogan of the language pioneers was, let, let us make a language. So, so the whole idea, you first modernize your language, and then you modernize the people through, through the language. And the, the biggest asset here was, was, was uh, you know, the Afrikaans speeches. They were really the champions of that whole, you know, cultural revolution in the sense that they enabled through the, a very good education, even if the schools was, was very poor, they haven't got electricity, all that, but they have enabled children to get a good education in order, you know, for them to, to be trained and, and uh, employed in the, in, the, uh, in the modern economy. Let's take a couple of calls. Mr. Flip, base of Solidarity is on the line, giving us some historical accounts. Take from what he tells us with whatever pinch of salt or sugar you will. If you agree or disagree, your thoughts are always welcome. 891 Let's take a very short sting before we get on the line in this order. Songhezo in Flagstaff in the Eastern Cape and KGM in Uppington. Here, there, and everywhere. SAFM 105.2 FM in East London. Song is in Flagstaff. Good evening. Well, sir, how are you? Uh, quite well, man. Uh, good evening, Mr. Pace. Uh, good evening, sir. Um, your guest, yes, man. Um, first point, first time caller. Uh, Thank you. Awesome, awesome, awesome content. So I'm, I'm just wondering how many people get to listen to these kinds of discussions, you know. And um, listening to this is, um, it's a history lesson for me. Uh, I'm sure Mr. Pace would be arrested some time ago if <laughs> as, as spilling the, the beans on how a nation is built. <laughs> From what he's saying, it, it is it, it is amazing that a society can can be aware of their situation, collectively agree to take a certain direction and follow through and <clears throat> rip the and rip the rewards as a nation. You know, um, I'm in the medical profession. I've, I've worked for the state for 20 years this year. 
And I will honestly say, I have been totally oblivious and ignorant to such a history. And this is a history we need to know. Because it, it is, if you could simply wake up tomorrow, and right now people are crying about our pension funds will be taken away. But the way he's explaining it makes so much sense, a collective understanding of where we are. It's not about, if we don't do this, be aware of where we are. Oh, man, mm. we're in trouble. You know, there's, there's all kinds of, 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 of comments that will come, and we, I, Mr. Pace, thank you for the history lesson. Thank you so much. Thank and you so much, Song, as a coordinator. I will be able to teach my children. Excellent. No, we appreciate not that. Like this before. Songazo, let's cut it there, please, because we have to move on. Appreciate your first time calling. May there be a second time very, very soon. KGM, good evening. Your thoughts. You know the rules. Good evening, uh, Songazo. Good evening to your guest and to the listeners. Indeed. Um, the, the danger that came with post-94 was to know too much of nothing. The, there was systematic infrastructure both by the apartheid government and also by the so-called Bantu stands. Recently, you would know, Songeso, that um, we are busy with a, a, a development called the Mampondo City in the Eastern Cape. Prior to that, I sat down with the guys who established Orania in the, in the Northern Cape. Mm. And, and I was learning the good things that they were doing. Now, the oblivious, ignorant uh, friend or black folk closer to me was, what is it that you're going to learn from people who oppressed us? But when you look at the Africaners, it doesn't matter whether you look at it from a farming point of view or uh, from an economic or even from the social point of view. They've got one thing that we are failing to do, and that is to rally themselves around from being a family to a community to a society and to an African nation. We, we know too much of nothing. That's why we are not willing to learn from others who have done it before and perfected it. Closing. There was <clears throat> a homeland called Bukutatwana. <clears throat> uh, the stipend it used to receive from the old apartheid government, if your guest would know, it was 20,000 per annum. It built itself, or the people who were at the helm, built it to what we got to know when it was defunct in 1992-93. What is it that we've learned even from our own people? If we say we can't learn from the Africaners because they are white, what are we saying about our own blacks? So who are we prepared to learn from? So yes, mm. time is an enemy. Thank you so much. It always is. I appreciate your thoughts. Flip, you want to respond to those two calls, Songezo and KGM, respectively? Um, Songezo, can I, um, can I say something? Um, sure. You, you see, my, my grandfather was a survivor of a British concentration camp. My, uh, my father uh, had only completed his uh, primary school. My, my grandfather, uh, you know, had any formal schooling uh, so much. And uh, so my father had only primary school education, so he worked for a farmer cooperative. And uh, so I come from a working class uh, background. And I don't want to deny anything about uh, what happened under apartheid, but in the 1930s, 
the, the whole focus of of, of my grandfather's generation, you know, he was very bitter uh, towards British imperialism. But mm. he said that, that, that I remember that we must focus on the causes of prosperity instead of the causes for poverty, you know. So, so he said, yeah, you, you must look in the rearview mirror, what, what the British did to us. But he said, if we want to go forward, we have to look through the, uh, you know, through the front window. So, so your vision of, of the future must be, uh, uh, you know, much more clear than than your uh, than your uh, remembering of uh, of the history. So, I do not deny anything what what happened in the past, and and I yeah, I think it's very important that people also should look at at the past and and specifically, you know, what happened under apartheid and and the oppression and the uh, denying of of opportunities. I think what's, what's very important was that Afrikaners at that stage placed the emphasis on alleviating poverty. That was the whole idea. And, 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 and not through combating uh, inequality through state-driven you know, redistribution. So the whole idea was sure. let's, let's make our uh, contribution to the economy bigger by creating companies. And, and specifically, the, the groundwork was good education, and, and uh, then our share of the economy uh, will increase. So that was the lessons I've learned from my uh, father and my grandfather, and they uh, were not learning people. I want to quickly run through the main points of the exchange we had before we took to studio, which pretty much predicate this entire discussion. Unfortunately, for want of time, we don't have enough of that for you to go through it. But I think in terms of, I mean, you've got how many lessons here? You've got 10 lessons here. You, you spoke at length about the first, which essentially for the listeners at home, freedom and decolonization, importance of language and identity. The private sector was the locomotive of the economy. The state was the railway, how certain monies that the state had to provide for the purposes of economic prosperity to take place. A group's share in the economy is determined by its contribution, specifically through the private sector and establishment of your Suntums, Sunlums, Rembrandt, Volkskas, Naspers, Evbob, and the like, including federal mining. Power of the community, KGM referred to that. Lesson number four, lesson number five, economic development is a process, not an event. We're going to come back to that one because that was your last point. But lesson six, the focus was what led to prosperity, the lessons from your grandfather in that sense. Competition rather than takeovers, if we have time, we'll speak about that. Look through the windscreen, not through the rear view mirror. Lesson number eight, you've mentioned that already. Governance instead of government control. Many lessons can be learned even in this administration about that. Cities rather than farms. But let's go back to lesson number five, Flip, if we when we do have a bit of time. Sure. Economic development is a process, not an event. And open quote, Afrikaners placed emphasis on alleviating poverty by means of economic growth, not on combating inequality through state-driven redistribution. In other words, the Afrikaners at that time would never have implemented the social security plan that is currently in place in the form of government handouts through social grants. You thought or were going to attend to the same poverty, but through economic empowerment. And that economic empowerment did not include government handouts. What exactly else can you say in elaborating on that? Yeah, you see, uh, you, you must remember in the 1930s, South Africa wasn't uh, industrialized. I mean, there was mines in, in, in the Johannesburg region, but it wasn't a fully uh, industrialized country. So there was a very, very small uh, economy. The tax rates was, was very low. 
And uh, so the, the Afrikaners at that stage say, you know, their view was that we must first create a bigger economy because there's no money to, to redistribute. I mean, there, was, there wasn't, uh, you know, big pension funds and all that. There was nothing of, of that. So what happened is that they saw the, a social security system as, uh, you know, the rewards of decades of economic growth. They, say, they see that far in the future, you know. They say that we must first produce before we uh, consume. So the whole idea was to, um, you know, to, I mean, there really wasn't money for, for Social Security at that stage. So, so the money there, that there was was uh, invested in, and, and, you know, the, the tax money was invested to create an infrastructure for, uh, you know, an industrial revolution. But, but the savings of Afrikaners, the, the, there was a lot of organizations like, the, you know, the Help Makar organization, the Help Each Other organization, you know, many community organizations really uh, all over the country. So uh, the whole idea was, uh, was crowdfunding. So they used the the um, money of, of poor people, they've invested that into uh, those companies that was, uh, start, the people were starting companies all over the, the, the country. And so the, the whole idea was that we must grow the economy. You know, the, the whole idea of a, of a bigger cake, of a, of a larger cake. So, um, yeah, so I, I can say that the, the focus was on growth, the focus was on production, the focus was on building the, the economy, of course, that stage only for whites, and the focus was on, uh, you know, on developing. But the, on the most basic level, you know, I remember my mother uh, was a, a primary school teacher, and the, you know, I remember she sitting with the candles in the in the, at the small school and at a very very small uh, farm, uh, not not economically viable. And the first time, you know, uh, you know, I remember my mother in uh, you know at night with with the candles, uh, busy with preparing for for the next day's work. She t- teaching diploma, and the the first time I was able to put on uh, uh, electric light in my in, uh, in my room was in my matric year when we moved, uh, you know, to the uh, to the town. So uh, the, the whole idea was was that uh, we must first, uh, uh, you know, improve our schools, and the teachers uh, played a very very important role. They they were really the champions of uh, the you know of the whole process. They laid the groundwork. Fantastic. Let's take our final call this evening. I understand it is Dawn in Johannesburg. Good evening, Dawn. Thanks for calling. Good evening. I just wanted to say I attended a lecture years ago by a very old man, and he was telling us how the English had stopped the Afrikaners from becoming lawyers or accountants or anything like that, and they were unable to get into any of those professions. And so they sent a couple of them over to Kushka and Mayer and several others to uh, overseas to study, which they did. And then they came back and they all started firms where they employed Afrikaners. And they started the IDC, they started ESCOM and everything. But the whole idea was that education was needed before anything else. And they really worked at the education and at learning music and arts and things like that. And they really pulled themselves up that way. And I just wished we... Hmm? No, no, I'm saying, well, fantastic, yes? Yeah, and I just wish that we could all do the same here now. <laughs> Thank fantastic. you very much. Okay, Most certainly bye. do appreciate that. Thank you so much, Dawn. Flip, I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to give you an opportunity to respond now because we will be cut by an ad break. So let's take that ad break now, and then we're just going to wrap it up in the three or four minutes after it, please.
Thank you. It's been a history lesson that certainly has interested even new persons on our platform, or certainly they have called for the first time, not that they are necessarily new, which we certainly do appreciate. The history of Africana economic empowerment, a conversation with Solidarity's flip base. We've had a conversation now for about close to half an hour, so we have to end it, unfortunately, but not before one, maybe two questions. Flip, all of that so far that you have said bears resonance now for the good, for the bad. And I think I want to predicate this question on at least this one concession that I probably should have made earlier. We understand all of this was happening at the expense or at least outside the contemplation of the large African majority in South Africa. So all of this is with that as the caveat. Nonetheless, let's proceed on that basis. You mentioned that teachers played a critical role in all of this, particularly with lesson number one, language, the building of institutions, including schools and universities. Dawn went on to corroborate that by saying education played a crucial role. And the fact that if it meant going overseas for that particular purpose, then it was done. We are here now in 2020, and one of the critically ailing government departments is education, a critical indicator that has just somehow kept producing poor outcomes that cannot really be consumed in university structures or even be allowed because of what little they have to participate meaningfully in the economy. And I know this because of the youth unemployment being so high and the lack of opportunities even that they are penetrating in. So when you look at what happened some hundred years ago to what is happening now, particularly on the indicator of education, what can you say? Well, at that stage, uh, the, uh, you know, the Afrikaners, uh, people like my mother, they were driven by a calling. So they, so they was, uh, you know, they were Christians, and they believed that uh, it is their uh, calling, not only their duty, but their calling to really give their best. You know, they, they always said, my mother always said that the main purpose of a school is good education. Uh, uh, in, the, in the first instance, not... not uh, uh, you know, reward for for the teachers. I, they really got a, not a very big salary at uh, at that stage. So, if you do not fix your schools, and by by that you, you start with your teacher, they are the most important um, link in the whole education system. So they must, uh, you know, even in many difficult circumstances, we all know. But but the teachers, uh, I, I can tell you, if if they do not really, um, uh, you know. Uh, if they're not the, the, the flags and uh, the flag bearers are the champions of uh, education and of economic development, I, I can't see how you were able to, to improve your school system. And if you can't do that, you you can't uh, you can't alleviate poverty. Uh, so so um, I, I think the teachers have the most important role. Yeah. I'm sure on another day we might have a conversation with you again on some of these important aspects, historical accounts which will help us better understand certainly what the country inherited in 1994 and then begin to understand the hits and the misses of the present day South African political, social, economic landscape. For now, thanks for your time, Mr. Flip Base. Thank you, Songhezi. Uh, Can I conclude with a final short remark? Sure. Yes. I know many people are angry about the past. I understand that. I know that many people are angry about the present. But let, uh, you know, don't let us fight so hard about the past and the present that we destroy our common future. Let's work together. In other words, that lesson of not looking in the rearview mirror, but look through the windscreen. Yes. 
Excellent. Thank you so much, Mr. Flip, Base of Solidarity. Let's take an ad break now before we continue this evening's show.